presented by the Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am the chairman of the board of Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Thank you for joining us again today. As policymakers and elected officials turn their attention to economic recovery, I believe above all, we must preserve the foundations of our economy for the long run. And I strongly feel the most important foundational cornerstone we have is education. We have to give the next generation the tools and the knowledge they need to succeed. To be innovators, they must have that educational grounding and foundation. We need to continue to grow our economy, and it's entirely dependent upon the educational base we have and the innovation that that helps spawn. At risk is the education achievement of all of our students, and that phenomena has earned a new name that is threatening that, and that is the COVID slide. Today's guest, CSPR education fellow, Dr. Brenda Bausch-Dickhoner, and Luke Raglan, president of Ready Colorado, are here today to share their thoughts and strategies to combat the COVID slide. You can find some backgrounds of these discussions in Brenda's latest article, Putting Students First Strategies to Mitigate the COVID Slide, on the CSPR website. She has also done previous work for us that is on the website with regards to the education in Colorado and I strongly encourage all of you to read this. It's really quite enlightening as to what's reality in Colorado. Well, let's start. Brenda, you're nice enough to join us today. And let's start with the COVID shuffle. What are we talking about this COVID slide? Excuse me. Yes, this co- the COVID slide is a term that has been coined to define learning loss that's expected to occur as a result from school closures in the wake of this pandemic. And these school closures have been very widespread, as we all know, most kids across the country have been affected by some a school closure in one way or the other, and about 96% of our students are attempting to learn from home, and the learning losses that are expected to occur are, are going to be significant, and I think that's why this COVID slide term has kind of come to the forefront of our discourse right now. Hey, give us some give us some numbers on this, if you would, so that we understand you know, are, what are we talking about with regards to the number of kids that are, are not attending school? Is it 100% at the present time? Uh, the best estimates right now are around 96% of students are at home. How many of those children actually have access to online? And I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah, I'm not sure about the numbers on that. There's some various estimates. One group surveyed a large number of school districts across the country and found about half are offering remote instruction. Um to some extent. And then Luke, who's also on here as well, can talk a little bit about the Colorado-specific results he's found in his survey um, that found about 35% of parents aren't, in, you know, their students are not engaged in learning. So maybe somewhere from, you know, a third to half of all students are not engaged in learning is probably a good estimate. Yeah, Earl, I think it's a, it's a good question. It's a tough number to grasp because it's so individualized. And it depends on factors that are outside of, you know, any sort of government officials control in terms of what sort of resources and time and availability are at, at home for different families. But one thing we would say, we so we did a poll. We, we pulled over 500 parents across the state of Colorado and asked them a couple of really basic questions around their experience with education, learning and the coronavirus pandemic. 
the big thing that stuck out to me was that 35% of Colorado parents said that they have done absolutely zero online learning or remote learning of any sort since schools shut down in March. And this was, the study was, or the research survey was conducted in the middle of April. So that, you know, that was uh, well into the pandemic. Uh, that means that we can probably realistically say about a third of kids aren't really doing any learning since schools were shut down in March. And that's a, a shocking and scary number for me, for sure. Well, it's not only shocking and scary, but I look at this and, and I, I'm opening it up to the two of you. It seems to me that one of the things we've tried to do at the school system is to go back to the, the, the common mantra of equal opportunity. And that's what the school system is actually set up to do, in my opinion is regardless of your socioeconomic background, if you go to school K through 12, you have a chance at least to have a foundation of equal opportunity. How is this in your mind currently impacting that sense of equal opportunity uh, for all the kids in Colorado? And if you want to say broadly, that's fine too. And I want to, then the next question I'd like to have the two of you discuss is, is how do you then correct that, if at all? Brenda? It's definitely an unequal impact, and we know that these inequities have been in our education system for a long time, and this is really just shedding light on those inequities and and perhaps exacerbating them as well, where some students don't have access to high-speed internet, they don't have access to devices to do their work on, um, and so those types of the digital divide is really showing being a parent, become a parent right now, and I think the The home realities are affecting your ability to learn as well. So students who are at home with parents who are both having to try to work, who are struggling to put food on the table, they are going to be more impacted by this as well, rather than students who who may have a parent dedicated to providing homeschooling to them. So you're going to see this have an uneven effect on students. Luke, you've been involved with Ready Colorado and been wrestling with this issue about how do we elevate the educational level within the state of Colorado. And and you've got some strong opinions there. But now we've thrown a curveball at you Mm -hmm. with COVID-19 and the kind of the closure of the schools as we have. Can you kind of address my question from your perspective? Yeah, I see sort of two main variables, Earl, in in relation to the sort of equal opportunity and equal access to quality education. I think there's a family variable. Brenda and I both mentioned that, right? You know, there's logistical problems uh, that exist about kids being able to learn right now, uh, financial problems, uh, time problems uh, that families have. But there's also a school variable. Some schools have done dramatically better than others responding and adapting to this changed circumstance. I talked to a a mom uh, down in Colorado Springs whose son attends a charter school called McLaren Classical. And it's a public charter school, Colorado Springs, great school, really high performing. And I asked, I I said, talk to me about your experience. Her son has special needs. Uh, He has an IEP is what it's known in the educational uh, mantra. But basically uh, that means that he has a plan for special needs that have to be met. So he has a little bit uh, higher expectations in terms of services uh, at the school. She told me that not a single lesson was missed. Not only did they not miss a day, they didn't miss a lesson. Schools closed down one day. The next morning, the school picked up with live online instruction, um, with teachers calling and checking in on the kids every day, school administrators making calls on the weekends to gauge family experience and seek their feedback. Uh, this, this mom told me that her son literally didn't miss a, a lesson. Uh, in contrast with another mom I talked to in Denver, traditional student, not, an, in, not a special needs student, uh, attends a school in Denver. And since the lockdown, this was about a week and a half ago, but 
since the lockdown happened uh, in that sort of month and a half period, uh, there had been exactly one single phone call made by the teacher to the mom. And that they had uh, a total of two 30 minute Zoom sessions um, in a month and a half time period. So there's variables uh, on multiple sides of this, Earl, for me, uh, in terms of family variables and access and equal opportunity. And I think the state should be doing as much as they can to recognize those and remedy those, providing access and other things to families on a case by case basis. But there's also a massive school variable um, here. And I'll, I'll stop monologuing here. There's lots of things I think we should do about that and what it means for the broader system. But I think that those are the two main variables that we're seeing. I, I want to get I want to get back to what you're talking about in a second, but I I want to cover something else that that the two of you are, are well engaged in, and that's the state budget. And you know we have a state budget that is uh, the last number I saw is three billion dollars short, and it could be higher than that by the time we're through with it. And we certainly don't look like we're going to have that budget shortfall made up by anything reasonable in the next 24 to 36 months. And a big part of our budget is paying for K through 12. Help me out. How do we not punish our education system even more in light of this budget shortfall? What do you think the legislators ought to be thinking about? And what are your fears as we try to solve this particular budget shortfall and the impact it could have on education? Brenda, I want you, if you can, a little bit uh, in answering this question from a state level, Go down and share with us what your thoughts are on how the local school systems are beginning to answer this question, too. So let's start at the state level first. And, and ladies first again, Brenda, so please. Thanks, Earl. Yeah, there's going to be some difficult budgetary decisions that have to be made, no doubt. And I think we're hopeful that at the state level, there's some thought that's given to how you know, federal dollars could be used to support those students who need it most, how we can really take our resources that we have and think about prioritizing the greatest needs. And do, do, that, do that, do that, do that. Come on, prioritize the greatest needs. What kind of additional federal numbers are you talking about that we need so that we as a public out here can say, is it happening? And what's the prioritization that you would suggest? Yeah, I don't have I don't have a specific number um, for you, but Luke, maybe Luke can come up come up with one. Uh, but you know, I think right now what we're seeing is I saw some estimate that the current federal supports about two hundred and seventy four dollars per pupil on average, and that is a very I think this is a national estimate, so I don't know what the Colorado specific numbers would look like. We're going to see large deficits, much more high, you know, higher than that. $274 per pupil doesn't, doesn't go very far. And so we really need to think about, you, you know, yeah, how we're prioritizing it in terms of, and I'm saying, but, you know, those who have the highest academic needs is would be one priority. I know that there's going to be social, emotional and health and wellness needs as well. But I think that with the incoming class to do some, if, you know, schools and districts are doing diagnostic testing, they're going to be able to readily identify those students who are the most behind and think about how they get dedicated one-on-one instruction. How do they get tutoring? How, and then to Luke's point, how students with special needs, how are they getting their have their needs met? Um, English language learners, uh, making sure these students who are really already behind don't fall further behind and how they really get the attention, how they get access to the to the best teachers and how they get that in-person instruction, especially at a time when we're seeing schools already announcing that they're going to be, they're going to continue remote learning in the fall to some degree. So thinking about how those students who are most behind can access that limited in-person instruction that will probably go a long ways to helping catch them up. Luke, before you answer, I, 
I guess my immediate reaction is that doesn't look like a very winning strategy for the average parent. It sounds to me like you're saying that by need, we have to make certain that those most needy are taken care of. And I don't have a disagreement with that. But I think as an average parent who is out there with a child that doesn't fall within that category you're talking about, it sounds as if the level of education and attention they might get for education it's going to be decreased uh, unless somehow that budget deficit is made up at the local and uh, in our public school system. Or am I misreading what you're saying? And I'm not suggesting you're wrong. I'm just trying to understand you know, what you're suggesting. Yeah, I think it just comes down to the the kind of school school by school element and the family element that Luke mentioned earlier. Of you know, some students are going to have parents that are able to help them with their homework and help them run through their lessons, and other kids aren't. And how can we try to at least do our best to compensate that? And I don't, you know, yeah, maybe that's not fair to the most, you know, the average parent. Um, I'm certainly not a really great homeschool teacher for my kids right now, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying and I'm available to try to help them, help them do that. And I know that's not the case in, in other families. Um, so yeah, with limited dollars, you know, how are we really trying to reach those, those kids that are having a tougher time of it? Brenda, thanks. Luke, I know you're looking at this on the edges all the time, trying to figure out, wait a minute, we got the public school system, but how can we make the overall education of our Colorado better? How do you respond to the question I asked to Brenda? Yeah, I mean, I think the first and foremost thing I would say is that while money is important, resources are important, money's not the only thing, and it's probably not even the most important thing, Earl. I think that the way in which we spend resources and allocate resources is significantly more important. And schools are going to take a cut, though. There's just absolutely no way for the budget to be balanced in light of the, the downturn. Schools are about 36% of general fund spending. And so when you're down $3.3 billion, or which is roughly 25% of general fund, it's just simply unavoidable. I think that begs the question. So cuts are a, a, a something that we can't be avoided. But I think that we can think about how we make those cuts in ways that lessen the pain as much as possible. We The last time we had a budget deficit in 2008-2009 crisis and the years following that, we used a sledgehammer approach. We did an across-the-board equal cut to all schools. We did that through something called the negative factor. I think that was a, in retrospect, looking back at that um, and seeing how it played out as revenues then increased, that was a terrible mistake because our school funding formula provides dramatically different amounts to different schools across the state um, and uses different factors to do that. Some of those factors make sense and some of them don't make any sense. And I think that we have the opportunity when making cuts to make cuts in ways with a scalpel, while that scalpel might have to do a lot of cutting, uh, I think it can be done in ways that uh, will dramatically limit uh, damage that would be done and put a fine, very fine point on it. Some of the biggest factors that we use, so everybody gets the same base for pupil funding, and then there's little factors that are used to add on to it depending on student demographics, most notably the at-risk factor. But there's actually another factor that is three or almost four times the size of the at-risk factor, and that's something called cost of living. And that asks the question, how wealthy is the area that the school district is in? And the wealthier that area, the more money we're going to send to it. Now, I don't think that makes much sense, to be honest. And maybe it's because I'm from a, you know, a small town, sort of rural part of Colorado. Uh, and the idea that, that low-income places need less support to attract the best teachers or um, overcome obstacles is, is sort of nonsensical. So I think um, looking at that cost of living a factor 
and, and making cuts to places that receive undue benefit, three to four times the benefit versus places that have many at-risk students would be a good place to start. And then more fundamentally, Earl, I think the real solution to this, though, is uh, creating more flexible structures for new mo- modes of schooling. We talk in broad terms about schools being open or closed. Um, we talk in, in broad uh, sense about online learning or remote learning. But that's not really how education works. It's perhaps one of the most uniquely individualized uh, things that we all do. And I think we've all know that, right? We all have these moments uh, of our learning and hopefully we all still feel that as adults that uh, respond to our specific skill sets and, and styles of learning and also our individual sort of circumstances and needs. And so thinking about those unique circumstances and individual needs are just going to be magnified in this next process. And so I think we have to rethink the way that we deliver education primarily if we want to address these cuts in a ways that will, will limit problems. Okay, Luke, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push both of you. That's, it's a nice general statement. We've got to think about different ways of delivering it. And, uh, Brenda, you've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And Luke, you're, you're pretty much in the trenches on it, but we have a case in point with Jeffco at the present time. It seems to me they've come out and suggested a different way of delivering. I want you, if you can, to speak directly to that, and then I, I'm going to push you on effectiveness because, you know, we can deliver differently, but if we're not effective or if we don't improve, you know, why do it? So, Brittany, give us a sh- give us, a, you know, kind of your assessment, if you would, please. Yeah, so Jeffco recently announced that they're, they shared some of the details of their plan for next fall under the assumption of the current Safer at Home order continuing. So, some of the focus was around right now, groups of 10 or more are banned. So they're proceeding with this idea that there cannot be more than 10 students in a room together. Some districts are even trying to figure out if that means more than 10 students in a building. But I think there's a lot of unclarity right now. And I, I'm hopeful that over the next couple months, the state and the uh, the current health department, local local health departments and state departments will provide more clear guidance to schools over really what is the safest way to proceed. Because I think proceeding under this idea that there has to be 10 or, or fewer students together at all times is, is a huge logistical barrier. And so their response was that students are probably not going to be in person any more than one day a week. And the other days they will be home and there will be some sort of rotating schedule for when those students come into the building with the most of the instruction happening online. And then in person, students would kind of get that one on one tutoring support that they need again, maybe one day a week, if that. So I think that rightly so kind of set some parents off in terms of how are we going to deal with that if both parents are working? You know, how is this sustainable for a whole nother school year? You know, the superintendent made a comment about how families are just going to have to adjust and that that's this is the new norm and businesses are going to have to figure out how to keep one parent home. And so I think that's sort of the the uh, Jeffco situation that's unfolding right now. And as a large district, they're impacting a lot of families and a lot of students with this uh, announcement. And so I think moving forward, there needs to be, again, some more clarity over what sort of those mandates are. Is it two students per building, per school room? What does that mean? Um, and then, I, you know, and, and then also maybe a better, I'd like to see the conversation turn more from these kind of operational and logistical details, which I know are important, but I'm hearing nothing about the learning loss. I'm hearing nothing from the superintendent of Jeffco saying, this is our plan for catching kids up. This is our plan for monitoring their progress. This is our plan for ensuring kids aren't falling through the cracks. And instead, it's very focused on operational logistics right now. 
Um, so those are some of the uh, bigger issues at, at play. And I know Luke's very familiar with the situation as well and, and could speak to yeah. it. Yeah, I want to jump in just because. Luke, just a second. second. I want to push back on Brendan for a second. You've said a couple of very, in my mind, some very important things, and I'm just a business guy. You're telling me that that it's one thing to say you're going to have one day a week in the classroom, and then it's another thing to say then there will be online learning. But you're saying there's a there there is a process by which this needs to be monitored, maybe even made unique to each student to make certain that they are learning. I'm just going to push you on this point. So you said testing, for example, and you said monitoring, for example. So none of this works in, in your mind, if I heard you correctly, if there isn't some continual way to make certain that progress is made, uh, continual progress is being made in learning. Is that correct? Yeah, Earl, we need, I mean, some of the best practices we're seeing right now from remote learning, uh, I saw you know, some from some of our major charter networks, are some of the key things they're doing are checking in with students, monitoring their progress, providing grades, doing interim assessments to understand where kids are, essentially doing what we would hope they're doing during a regular academic year. But we're seeing this happening in a remote learning environment in, again, some of these sort of higher performing schools and in some charter networks. I'm you know, not seeing that happen in a lot of our larger public school districts. And is so there a reason that, is there a reason it can't happen or is it just a matter that it's not being done? It's, I would argue that at this point it's not being done. Um, there was a certain on ramp that had to happen where students had to get devices delivered, that they had to get, you know, st- schools were figuring out how to get meals to students, but it's been a couple months in the, since the shutdown happened. And now we have enough time to plan for the fall where that should be the norm for next year, where all students are be, um, receiving high, you know, highly rigorous instruction. They're being monitored, their work's being monitored. They're having in touch, whether it's remote learning, but face-to-face remote learning. So they're interacting with teachers um, on a daily or weekly basis. These types of high standards we put into place. And I'm not, you know, I think right now we're not kind of hearing about those plans from districts. What we're hearing about right now is just what these, again, these logistical arrangements of whether students are going to come to school or not come to school. Um, and there's less of an emphasis right now on what their learning environment's going to look like. Well, what, I, what I hear you saying is that there could be a best practices that people could be talking about and starting to design that would be maybe unique to each school district, maybe even unique to each school, maybe even unique to each classroom. But you don't see that formulation of best practices. Luke, I'm, I'm going to you know spin to you right now and ask you, again, you're very much engaged in the total environment that's going on out there and probably some of the more unusual uh, practices that are being successful. Weigh in on this topic, would you please? Yeah, I'll, I'll do a two con- uh, extreme contrasts at, the, at, the, at either end to try to make the point early where I'm at. I think Jeffco is the ultimate example of what not to do. They're doing something different, and I think you point out that uh, very nicely, but they're not doing something that's individualized and uh, adaptable to individual family needs. I mean, and, and why you asked Brenda that question, why well, I think it's because it's a gigantic ship and it's hard to turn that big ship. You know, uh, these large districts have 90,000 students, hundreds of different schools spread across a large geographic area with dramatically different circumstances for each. And then, of course, we're not even talking about the individual circumstances that are different for each household that has a kid at one of those or multiple schools. Collective bargaining agreements are something that absolutely drag down these schools. There's been examples of collective bargaining agreements in Colorado uh, that have stopped teachers from delivering 
let's say, recorded lessons for families to watch at a time that it's convenient for them. They've actually used collective bargaining agreements as a reason to stop the teachers from making recorded lessons and forcing students to access at a certain pinpoint day and, and time. And all that's just to say this 90,000 student behemoth with hundreds of schools and weighed down by a collective bargaining, they simply can't move fast enough. In contrast, you see charter schools, individual operators. I shared the story of one in McLaren. That's a single school that isn't weighed down by a collective bargaining agreement that can move on a dime as fast as it wants to move. And then I would even go to the other extreme, though, and where I think we really need to be thinking, Earl, in a radical sense, is micro grants to families. Considering the wide, wide divergence of individual student need and individual family circumstance, I think that we really have to think about ways we can provide direct financial support for education to families in ways that we never have before. There has been a proliferation and an incredible expansion of online learning materials and individual tutoring sessions that can be purchased online. And you're seeing wealthy families gobbling these things up. Uh, left and right, anybody who can afford it is purchasing these uh, supplementary services to add on top of what they're receiving from their schools. I think that it's critical that if we're looking at key places to invest, if we're triaging in the middle of a budget crisis, putting your bet on the things that can make the biggest bet long-term, and for me, that's individual grants to families to spend on education in a, in a wide array of, of, of methods, because simply spending it on one method, putting a bet on a single day like of, of school like in Jeffco is a terrible bet because it doesn't actually meet the need. It's an information problem at its core. Well, I'm, I'm going to challenge both of you just a second, if I would. I, Luke, I understand where you're coming from uh, with regards to the uniqueness of charter schools and the individual family situation where, you know, they may be better served, regardless of your socioeconomic background, better served outside of the public school system. But let's face it, folks. The public school system is here. It's a significant part of our community. We do have teachers' unions. We have a problem. And the problem is, is we've got a significant part of our budget is being challenged, and we've got to find a better way to spend it, spend our money, so we don't continue to have this bifurcation of income inequality, of which income, which education is a significant reason for that income inequality. I give to you now a minute apiece, if you would. What do we do with regards to the public schools unique to COVID-19 right now so that we don't exacerbate income inequality by creating two tiers of education and that we have people have a chance to get an equal opportunity, be it public and private. Brenda? You talk about the public education system, and I think you know, we, it's important to remember that charter schools are public schools, and they're part of the same. Right. They have more flexibilities. They have more waivers. Um, and, yes, the collective, bar- collective bargaining agreements are posing challenges. I think there's also local and state regulations that are, are going to have to be waived. And I think looking to, rather than having this competitive spirit of, you know, charters versus traditional district schools really working and coming together right now and thinking about sharing best practices. So what these charter schools do have some more flexibility and nimbleness. What can we learn from them and what can we do to these larger districts and use those best practices? Just one example, there's a charter network that has one teacher who is teaching five classes. She's 112 sixth graders. She teaches all those students via Zoom or through an online platform. I can't remember what they use. But then that frees up the other sixth grade teachers to do monitor the lessons, do the grading, provide the one-on-one instruction to students. It's a very creative way to address the current situation. And students are showing progress. They're staying on track. 
And so I think looking at those best practices and thinking about how we adapt that to our current environment, what needs to be waived? There needs to be some waivers around seat time, around teacher-student contact hours. Um, so thinking about that and applying those types of that flexible thinking to our traditional public school system is what we're going to need to move forward. That's, that's a very important point. And so what you're saying, is that something you see at the that each local school district is going to have to take underway? Or do you see some some uh, statewide uh, leadership uh, along the lines you're talking about? It seems like a pretty practical approach, and you've got a lot of evidence to su- support it. Uh, do you yeah, I think the state, I think the state, state level you, you can get support yeah. or is it mostly local? Yeah, I think state leaderships are already talking about that and thinking about whether there's like a, a collection of waivers perhaps that schools can opt into and districts can opt into for this new environment. But it's going to take local leadership as well to to figure out which of those waivers they need and how to implement them and how to really take advantage of rolling out the new innovative model of teaching students right now. And who's who is uh, advocating what you're talking about right now? I'm not sure if there's a yeah, Luke. I'm not sure what all who all the specific specific people are who are advocating it. Maybe Luke and I answer that one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm the one that has to wrestle with the pigs down at the Capitol, Earl. Yeah, there, there, I think that uh, there's a, several sort of reform-minded education advocacy organizations that are making those arguments along the lines of what Brenda said there explicitly. I'll put myself in that category for sure. To answer your question, though, there's also a more simple and basic need that I think we need to be advocating for on the state level, and that's um, setting clear expectations and guidelines for reopening schools in the fall. Schools uh, are looking for that certainty, and I think the state could have a very unique and powerful role in creating clear guidelines, protocols, and expectations that schools are open in the fall. And if you talk about at the biggest level, realizing public schools are what uh, traditional public schools are what most kids attend, making it really crystal clear that we expect them to be open and running in the fall and doing so in a way that uh, is both safe for students and provides the psychological comfort that I think is critical for families to feel comfortable sending their kids there. And so what does that mean? I think that it means a lot, first off, allowing local education providers, charter schools and school districts, the operational decision-making that's necessary to decide when to open, but with the again expectation that they do open, creating those clear guidelines and protocols that if schools follow, that they will be held harmless in terms of legal liability. There's a major question about uh, whether school districts, if they open, would be the subject of lawsuits from both teachers, staff, and students. And I think if we set clear expectations about a standard of care that school districts and charter schools are expected to meet and that they can then be held free from liability for lawsuits relating to coronavirus, I think it would go a long ways to ensuring that schools are open in the fall. I think some other creative ideas for teachers who are older and maybe are in at-risk category and maybe don't feel comfortable returning to school and should be self-isolating, I actually think the state in those small number of circumstances, because the teaching workforce is actually quite young if, if you look at it, but there are some teachers who are in that uh, at-risk band. Providing an early retirement option, I think, from the state would be a safe and responsible practice for us to look into. So those are some like really high level things that I think the state actually must do before the fall. Otherwise, schools are not going to feel comfortable opening up. I certainly understand what you're saying with regards to traditional, non-traditional. But one of the things I hope that does not materialize is all of a sudden we compromise outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would hope that we can use um, forward thinking and, and new technology that will enhance outcomes in our school systems. I can't thank you all enough, and I, I guess I am thanking you for your time and all the work you do and the dedication to our community and, Brenda, the research that you have done. And, Luke, you're on the firing line, you know, trying to figure out how do we get these school systems in each, you know, area possible 
even better with uh, whatever approach might be available, be a charter school or even the school system itself. And Brenda, your research has really helped enlighten us as a community. So thank you. That's it for today. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Earl. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsensepolicyroundtable.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on Podcatchers Everywhere or on our website in the News tab under CSPR Podcast. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communication. This has been a production of the Common Sense Policy Roundtable.